0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: So you climb down with this rope and there's the rope isn't attached, it's held onto by other people on, on the other side of the edge. And then they lower one guy down, up and down, and then move, move several meters to the left, and then go up and down again. Just move gradually, slow, throughout, throughout the cliff.
2: Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. Today's episode uh, happened by chance and it blurs the lines a little bit between what we normally call a feature and a dispatch. Um, This episode does run in the kind of interview format that we normally use for a feature, uh, but it's much shorter than usual because of the amount of time I had to record it. Um, I actually met the man who features in this episode um, on a ferry on the way across to one of the tiny islands that make up the Faroe Islands, Uh, I'm out here working on a commercial photo project at the minute and um, Johannes was one of our fixers and we got chatting on the ferry and his life was so interesting and so unique that I thought he'd make for a great podcast episode. Asked him and he agreed and we found half an hour in the schedule to pull this together. I'm really pleased we managed to make it happen. Some people, well most of the people we interview pick uh, to lead adventurous lifestyles. Others are born into them. And Johannes kind of embodies that. He's definitely the sort of person that you don't meet by trying to find them. In this episode, we talk about life on a tiny island, uh, sheep farming, bird hunting and the increase in tourism. Now, the ethics of bird hunting is something that will definitely split opinions. One of the things I love about travel the most is the different cultures and different people that we all meet on these journeys and the different ways that people find to live and survive and i personally have a bit of a soft spot for people who are holding on to skills uh, that will otherwise get lost as time goes by i think johannes makes a really good case for continuing bird hunting himself but i'll leave you to make that decision i hope you enjoy this episode to set the scene you need to imagine yourself on the rocky shores of a windy wet faroese island uh, on an april day Uh, my name
1: is Johannes, and last name is Kaltzger, So it's Johannes Katzger. And uh, I'm, uh, I am live in the village called Sotanes. I grew up here and basically have been living here my entire life. And uh, we have a, a family farm here in the village, mostly sheep farming. We have had uh, cows for dairy farming as well and other things like that. And uh, so this farm has basically been... It has grown into the family because we have been there for so many generations. Uh, we know that the first person in our family moved here in 1698, and uh, the line of farmers has not has not broken since then and up, up till to this day. It has changed from cousin to cousin and from father to son, so it's still the same family, but it's like so we have been there for quite a long time, yeah. And what's
2: it like growing up here?
1: Uh, it's different but I think it's amazing um, you have all this area like when you're a child you like to run around a lot So you have all this open fields uh, which we hay in the summer and after they're done haying we use them for playing football running around you can go up the mountains climbing on rocks stuff like that and and we have all these animals around which is quite amazing so I think uh, it's something that every child should be allowed to experience at least once in their life
2: yeah. And. Uh do you hope to have children here? Yeah, I do, yeah. I will uh, wish them to experience the same as I did, yeah. Can you tell me about
1: sheep farming? Sheep farming, yeah. Um, in the Faroe Islands, we have this uh, quite traditional way of farming sheep. It's more like a ranch style. Uh, we have all these big areas for grazing in the summer. these and mountains and, uh, and areas like that. And... Uh, don't have uh, most farmers don't have so many sheep in the barn the barns are most likely to be too small to, to fit the entire sheep flock inside uh, the main reason is that uh, it's wetter basically because uh, during summer when we have to hay a lot of grass for the sheep uh, the fields are so wet that you can't use big machineries to harvest all the grass so that make makes it a quite a, of an issue to provide an, uh, to make enough food to provide all the sheep during the winter so we have a uh, solution that we take like a part of the portion of the sheep inside as much as we can f- have inside and feed and then we feed the other ones outside and uh, so that's uh well throughout the years it's going more and more into the the, the professional way to having more sheep inside as possible and bigger machinery stuff like that and uh, so that's uh How we do it today, and uh, so if we begin begin with the season in uh, October, for example, Uh, in October we slaughter all the sheep, and then we uh, take slaughter the oldest generations, and then we have to replace them by a new generation of younger sheep, which are born in the month of May, so they are six months old, and then uh, then you fill the barn with most likely the youngest generation of sheep, those that are are the weakest sheep, and the rams and then in uh, in uh, December, then that's mating season. So then you put all the rams back out to uh, to the females, that are out in the mountains, and then they will take care of their own thing. And in 10th of uh, January, you bring them back in. So in that way, you can actually regulate when you want all the lambs to be born. So if you if you did not bring the rams in during October when you slaughter. Then the mating season is uh, in November, December instead, instead of December, January. So that means the lambs would be born much earlier in April, when we can have snow and we can have bad weather. So most of the lambs will die due to weather. So uh, so that's why we like to keep them separated for for a month or two. And so then uh, the lambs are born. Now the uh, the mating season is over, and then. Uh, The sheep are pregnant, of course, and then we start feeding them extra feed to make them produce more milk. And we do that from uh, December and all the way till uh, May when the lambs are born. Then we bring all the sheep back down into the the fields so we can have them closer to the village. And then uh, all the lambs are born and we can watch them uh, around the clock, basically. So we go every morning early at five, four in the morning sometimes. And then you go back again at 6 and then 9 and 10, around the clock mostly. And the gonga shift, shifts mostly, uh, depends on the weather. The worse the weather, the more you have to go out. Of course, the weather is our biggest enemy in the lambing season. And so, so basically, then we hold every single lamb and uh, we type everything down, the color, the, the gender, and who's the mother, and if there's twins or not. And make sure also if the lamps are okay, that they're warm and, and have got milk or the mother and stuff like that. And then after that, we uh, release all the sheep back out to the mountains, and then we, uh, we're getting a much warmer climate, so we're getting fresh grass, and nature takes care of the sheep for the uh, rest of the summer, basically. And uh, then in July, then we bring all the sheep back in for sheep shearing, and we take all the wool off them, and then we basically do not so much until October again. Uh, of course, in the meantime, we have to harvest all the grass, of course. So uh, that means basically that. We are, me, for example, I'm the first person to hold all the lambs when they're newborn, most likely within two hours after birth. And I'm also the last person to hold the sheep. Can be six months later and also up to eight years later when we slaughter them. So it's like quite uh, amazing in that way when you like grew up with them. So when I was a boy, if I'm like 10 years old, that I have like a favorite lamb. When I'm 18, that then the same lamb is still alive. So it's like... You get attached to them, in a way. And does that create conflict for you? Uh, Sometimes, but uh, you you quite quickly realize that if you don't slaughter them when they're old, then they will lose their teeth and they will gradually starve to death because they can't eat. So uh, you know it's for their own best. We have tried out for for many generations that when the sheep are eight years old, that's uh, the limit. After that, it will just go downhill even though they can live up to 16 years old, but they will just be skin and bone and they have no teeth,
2: basically. So. Can you describe to me the connection that you feel to this land? The connection? Um, but I think it's like uh,
1: grown into me. It's like in my blood almost. So, because I've been here my entire life, my family, my ancestors, my great-grandfather and my great-great-great-grandfather, everyone has been there. And I'm like just continuing their work in a way. So... We have like a lot of old uh, stone walls, stone buildings, stuff like that. And all of them have been built by one of my ancestors at one time. And many of them, we don't know exactly how old they are and who built them, but they're still like a part of the family. As many of these old buildings we still use today. So if my great-grandfather built some building and my grandfather like made it a bit bigger, and then now I'm making it more modernized, stuff like that. So it's like all the same buildings, walls that we use for gathering the sheep, stuff like that.
2: Yeah and it's a really powerful thing to feel. Yeah, it is yeah. But are you are you ever tempted to move away to a bigger town or a city or no, I'm not much of a city guy, no.
1: I've tried being in places like just for vacation like for 2 weeks or stuff like that. It's, it's too much. It's too stressful basically, so
2: yeah. What's better about this lifestyle for you?
1: Uh of course it's quiet and uh you can go outside and you can walk basically uh, several hundred meters in every direction and still your own backyard and you can do whatever you want with wherever you want there uh, of course you don't go into your neighbor neighbor's farm of course but if I feel like uh, building a house over there for some purpose for the sheep or for myself then I can just do it and uh, just the, the freedom of being able to do whatever you want and then you have all these beautiful views of course and everything like that so and what's the community like here here uh, we are three families in the village, 12 people in total, and all three families are farm- farmers. And it has been like that for, yeah, forever, I think. So so um, we all have something in common, that's first. Um, we all have sheep. we all have had cows, and some of us still have a lot of bulls, but mostly sheep and geese and ducks and stuff like that. So you have your neighbors to talk to, so you can like compete with them in a way so if you if I have a good year with sheep maybe he doesn't and then next year it's the opposite so you always have something to talk about something to look forward to so I think that's in a way amazing because otherwise you wouldn't wouldn't know what to talk about so
2: and do you kind of share skills and knowledge and do you help each other out or is it quite separate uh
1: both Um, when we gather the sheep for example then we need a lot of people you have to walk out every single uh, cliff in the mountains and er- every valley and you gather all the ships down then we help each other <clears throat> so i help my neighbor and he helps me and then we don't pay anything they're just even and we do stuff like that quite a lot especially with bigger works but uh, smaller works we do quite separately so uh can be too much to work together all the time so so we give out each other private space if you need to and we still talk to each other almost every day anyway so it's like people live here in a small area like this for peace mostly because it's quite quiet so so we uh, all have that in common i think so we respect that for each other as well
2: yeah yeah that's a wonderful place to live yeah it is yeah and then can you describe to me what it's like in the winter when you need to go and look for the sheep well it can be horrible
1: <laughs> to be honest well we don't uh, don't get snow every winter but uh, we can get a lot of snow like a, a meter or a meter and a half and some winters can be not snow for a single day so the winters are quite different we can have like really stormy windy winters and we can have really cold quiet winters and snowy winters so when it's a lot of snow we have the problem that sheep cannot get back home to the village for feed because all the well is that there's like these big piles of snow that you have to dig through, make a path for the sheep. So we do that sometimes where we have to go out with a spade to help the sheep come back home. And uh, well, that isn't the worst. The worst part is the wind and the rain, which we have sadly too much of. Uh, we have um, one of the hard, hard, hardest winds ever recorded in the world here in the Faroe Islands. And uh, and uh, it's been measured up to 78 meters per second. I'm not sure what's that in kilometers over 240, I think. So, it's fast. Yeah. So uh, you can just imagine when you have to go out looking for the sheep in that type of weather. You, you can, you'll you lose your hat immediately. And uh, in a case like that, you'd rather not risk your own safety. Just wait until the storm is over and just hope for the best that the sheep are okay uh we have never really had any bad experience with that yet but i know other farmers when they go back out then there's like 40 sheep less or
0: something you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
1: Because it would probably fall fallen off a cliff or something, so you never know. So it can be really rough. And um, so I like the snowy part better, basically, because it's much more quiet but cold. So.
2: Yeah. And do you go out into the mountains for fun much? Uh, not so much, no, but uh, well, I go a
1: lot to the mountains, so I don't really have to go for fun. I go a lot with people as a tourist guide, and I go a lot for working with the sheep, and a lot for um, for catching birds as well. So uh, I would sc- describe that as fun at the same time, because I like doing the things I do, and so it's not like just work, uh, boring work, it's like fun work. so. So I don't go much just for fun because I enjoy it when I'm there anyway. So so can you talk to me about catching birds? Yeah, I can, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in uh, Faroe Islands, like uh, if you go several hundred years back, it was much more about survival than farming. So uh, it was like people, when you had like a piece of land, when you were a farmer, you did not just get sheep, you also got... Uh, uh, peat you know peat torf yeah yeah and you got uh, also uh, birds fish and whales even though you don't have access to the, to the to the ocean or anything when they get when there's a big whale hunt you also get a share of that just because you own land so it was like separated out to the landowners and uh, that means that people that did not have anything no piece of land they had to work under the farmers like farmhands just to survive and uh, you're not even allowed to get married if, unless you had land and women would look after guys upon how much land they had to marry them so everything was like involved in owning land and uh, so they had to basically use everything and eat everything to survive in the worst cases and the bird hunt has been uh, Quite dramatic in the sun, from time to time, and uh, we have a ca- we catch up, up to like five, six different species of bird, and all of them have their own season throughout the year, and uh, so we both climb down to collect eggs from the nests. We do that especially from 18th to 22nd of May, and that's fulmar eggs mostly. And uh, so you climb down with this rope, and there's. The rope isn't attached, it's held on to by other people on, on the other side of the edge. And then they lower one guy down, up and down, and then move move several meters to the left, and then go up and down again, just move gradually, slow, throughout, throughout the cliff. And of course, yeah, it can be dangerous. Uh, b- back in the days, the equipment was much worse than we have today. So there's been a lot of act- accidents, of course. Uh, and then we also do puffin hunts, for, for example. That's mostly in August. Sadly, the puffin population has been quite low in the last few years, since 2005. But in the last three, four years, it's been gradually going back up. So uh, we haven't been doing much for puffins in the last year, until last year, actually. So last year was the first year again we hunted puffins for almost 11 years, I think. So 12 years or so, yeah. So last summer, we caught 147 puffins, which is, is not a lot. So, but that's, that's a beginning, of course. And, and kittiwakes. we caught a lot of kittiwakes uh, in the uh, 60s. They disappeared in the 60s, and they haven't got back in great numbers. They are still here, but you can see like 5,000 of them, but that's still like nothing compared to what it used to be. And Gillimogs uh, as well catch them also so uh, it's different methods for everything basically we we can also uh, now nowadays you can go in the winter with boats on the fjords to shoot birds that's that's allowed now back then they did not have so many boats or many guns depends on the season of course and what bird it is
2: and we'll talk a bit about the sustainability if that's okay in a minute but um but before we do how how do you catch a bird? I mean, that might sound like a strange question, but when you're on a rope on a sea cliff and it's windy and raining? Yeah.
1: Uh, <clears throat> there's also many methods to that, of course. <laughs> Everything has their own methods. Uh, like I was talking about the fulmars and the eggs, you can also do it uh, when you go down. If you just la- leave the egg, and then eventually the egg will hatch, and then the chick will get bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, fulmars are a really, really fat bird. And so what happens is basically is that the parents leave the chick, they just abandon it, stop, stop feeding it, and then it will start to get hungry, and then it will eventually have to jump out of the nest. If it's, if it's uh, 50 meters or 400 meters down to the sea, they'll just have to jump, and they'll just go down. And uh, they will stay on o- the ocean, flight without be a- being able to fly for the next two weeks more. After they've starved for three weeks, then they're light enough to start flying. So, uh, so what we do is that we go down in that one week when they're in the cliff, abandoned by the parents, and you can collect them big fat birds actually from the nests and um, if you don't do it when then then you could go by a boat on the fjord after and just swoop them out of the ocean and that's been uh quite a lot of that recently especially on the fjords because it's easier to sail around i prefer doing it in, in the cliff because i think it's uh, you give the bird a bigger better chance like i think the other thing is like not so sporty if you if, if you like uh so that's one way of course and and the other way is that you, go, you climb down, uh, if, if you take puffins, for example, puffins are quite uh, afraid of people, so they keep a distance from people. So you climb down to the, the area where the, where the puffins live, and uh, then you find a great spot where you can hide a bit, a bit camouflaged. Uh, puffins, they fly in circles, and then you find the spot where the circles come, circle comes closest to land. And then you have this long stick with a net, which You hide at the same time, and then you just sweep one of them out of the circle at one at a time, and the circle will continue flying around with several thousand puffins. So that's how we do catch puffins. And you, it's you can pull them out of their caves, the, the caves, but we don't do that because that's cheating. So you give them those that are in the caves, most likely have chicks, so we don't take them because we want the chicks to survive, of course. So
2: and this is an obvious question, but what are you catching them for? And what do you do with them? Uh, yeah, of course, puffins are for food. and uh, They are boiled and uh, then
1: it's is really good food. Um, but the, the other bird I call the kittiwakes, they were caught for fetters. And then the, the fetters were sold. But of course, when you have caught the bird in the for, uh, already, then we, we, we would eat the meat. But the fetters would be sold. And what are the feathers used for? for um not blankets but uh pillows and stuff like that yeah. ah, okay yeah, yeah, kitty yeah. wake pillows yeah that's that's amazing because they have much softer feathers than other birds do so that's why they were specially used for that so
2: yeah okay i didn't know that um and then can you describe to me what a puffin dinner would be like well i guess it's not not close to anything you have ever tried i'm not sure, but uh,
1: but. Uh, so you, you haven't probably not tried full marsh either so if you had tried one of them i could describe but it's it's dark meat so if you uh, uh imagine uh, duck for example i guess you tried duck yeah so uh it's much more uh, it's a uh, darker meat much stronger and uh it's not as uh it's much uh, more solid, if you if you like. It's quite hard to explain because you have to try it. It's
2: more, it tastes more wild, if you like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it lived its life on a windy sea cliff. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And what do you have them with? There are different ways
1: to do it. Uh, well, what I'm used to is that you fill their insides, the belly hole, you fill it with dough, actually, like cake dough stuff, but especially made for puffin. And then you have potatoes and sauce, of course. So it's quite hard to describe. Uh, to imagine the puffin with the dough, but that's that's how um, almost every person in Faroes knows it. So uh, can't sound quite disgusting, but it's really good actually. So
2: yeah, yeah it's just different. Yeah, different yeah. ways to eat food. Yeah, and so what do you think about the sustainability? Knowing what you do now about the birds and populations.
1: Yeah, um, there's been this big discussion about catching birds, uh, especially the puffin, because they're so vulnerable. Because there's so a few of them right now. Many people that don't really know anything about it like to give the hunters the the blame for it. Uh, but when we catch puffins, we catch yeah we catch big numbers yeah, but uh, they're still like only like less than one percent of the population because there was, there were millions of them and and uh, what one guy can catch with one stick in a net one at a time is not gonna damage a population with millions of puffins uh, and you can only catch them for three weeks every year. Uh, so what happened uh, with the puffins, we believe, is that the fish called mackerel, they came to the Faroe Islands in big numbers in the year 2005, 2006, and that's the same time as the puffins disappeared, and they had the same uh, source of source of food. And the mackerel that came here, they came from Iceland, North Iceland, and they lost their mackerel in 2005 and have never had as many puffins as they do now. So it just like switched. And now it's slowly going the other way again. All these big uh, boats that are fishing mackerel, they're getting less and less now per summer, and the puffins are slowly going up again. So we believe that's a connection because there's no uh, experiment been done. This hasn't been proved anywhere, but I'm quite sure that what we hunt in the cliffs can't damage to the populations. That, uh, we just don't catch too big numbers to do that.
2: Yeah, no, it's a good its a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, these issues are always really complicated yeah. and everyone has a viewpoint. Yeah. But you actually live here and you actually do it. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what
1: most of the people living, uh, living in small villages or throughout the country say. That what we catch, even though it's like, uh, it sounds a lot, but if you have seen the actual flock of puppets, then it's not much uh, compared to. Uh, so, and the other birds as well, uh, most of them uh, that have where populations has gone down like in the kittiwakes and the guillemots. we don't catch them you're allowed to shoot them in winter but that's probably probably less than a thousand throughout the country per year and uh in full there's just so many full marsh that you can't get, get enough and there's estimated to be like somewhere between 10 to 20 millions of them in, in the Faroe islands and uh and you just can't. There are so many of them.
2: I've done some filming on some sea cliffs in Scotland where there are fulmars and yeah. awful. They throw up yeah, yeah. The, the horrible fishy okay. vomit the, on the, you. The, the clothes you
1: use when you catch fulmars, you throw them away after. So we keep, we store old clothes for that purpose. So we use them like one more time and you then throw them away. And puffins are, now fulmars are bad for puffins as well because puffins are afraid of fulmars. So fulmars have this, uh, they're likely to move in on the puffin areas and then the puffins will move away from them. So in some areas where you can't see it and control it, then we remove the fulmars again. So we give space for the puffins to maintain the puffin population. So we do also stuff like that to maintain the areas for puffins. And we also dig holes for them to make them, give them more living space if you want. Yeah,
2: yeah brilliant. Yeah. And then finally, how do you feel about tourism on the Faroe Islands? Tourism. Uh, well, there are many farmers
1: that don't like it to just start with that but uh, I see it more as an uh, opportunity because uh, uh, living out here like uh, the bird hunt is is slowly dying out because it's like not for uh, this time of uh, it's, it's like old stuff for many people we used to catch puffins because we had to, to survive and birds like that so we are not catches, catching as many m- numbers anymore because we don't need to and we have the sheep farm which is just getting bigger and bigger and uh, but it still isn't making enough money to make uh, income for a entire family. So I see the tourism as the third option, as an opp- opportunity to make something more, and offer these people welcome, and uh, then make jobs out of it. Do a lot of guide, tour tour guides if you can, and so I see that as a good opportunity. Of course, it can have a side effects with all the people walking in the land, of course, but you have to deal with that after. I think you have to try to make something good out of it, and then
2: take the other problem after so if people want to come here and see the the end of the world and invert yeah. the sorry the edge of the world and end of the world the yeah. end of the world yeah. and go for a walk to the lighthouse they can call you right
1: yeah no problem or they can just go on the website called hiking.fo so there are many many websites there you can book the tour hiking is probably the most famous one so yeah
2: brilliant thank you very yeah, much
1: no problem thank you thank you
2: Thanks for listening. For more information, please visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is created by Cold House in association with Sidetrack Magazine. It's produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin and hosted by Matt Pycroft. And as is always the case, if you want to email us, then you can get in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.